Aha, you're back. You've been eagerly waiting for part two of this episode, haven't you? Well, I'm glad you have. If you do enjoy the show, you might want to think about heading across to Patreon and supporting the show that way. You can choose options from as little as $5 US dollars a month, $10 US dollars a month, all the way up to as much as you can afford. Every little bit counts, and I would really appreciate it. Welcome to part two of episode three, where I continue my conversation with Dr. Jesse Schnoll and Dr. Daniel DeHotman. Welcome to Inspector Rabbit. psychotherapy that's out there being used for PTSD and depression there's the schema therapy there's a lot of subcategories to the therapy and often takes weeks months to build that rapport and that trust with the psychologist and then you've got 60 minutes or 90 minutes and if you're going to go to as you said potentially the worst place you know revisit and relive those experiences in your body and mentally that's really difficult to sort of go down that to that depth and connect with those emotions in a 90 minute session. Once you said, hello, how are you going? How's your week, etc. How have you been feeling? And then, okay, let's do the exposure therapy. Let's do the schema therapy. And then you are conscious that the, you, you'd be conscious during that time that you have 90 minutes and you might already be half an hour in and you're thinking, wow, I mean, that's, this is a lot to get through in a 90 minute session. <laughs> and then a lot of people from what, from what you're saying and from what I've read as well, they, they can't get there and it's, it's too traumatic to relive those experiences. And of course, why would you want to? It's difficult. Um, mm. we, all of these things are very, very difficult and it sounds like an incredible br- drug to be able to help those people get closer to those experiences. But it also sounds like from what you're saying that the sessions will be a lot longer than one hour or 90 minutes. So can you tell yeah. us a bit about how they'll be administered with the site is it a psychiatrist or psychologist? So I think it varies in, in the different studies. Um, and, and again, as a disclaimer, I think, you know, we should both mention that, you know, we are, you know, med- medical doctors, um, but neither of us have been personally involved in any of these studies uh, or in, or in any treatment of patients with these conditions. So at least for me, and I assume it's the same for Dan, um, my knowledge of this is purely based on conversations with people who have done that, like Dr. Rucker in the UK and also our reading of the research and the evidence. Um, And there is a fantastic movie, uh, which we saw put on by Mind Medicine Australia called Trip of Compassion, which I would really recommend people watch. uh, And that actually chronicles people's um, sessions with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So you can actually see them firsthand and get get a visual insight into what they look like. 
Um, right. But to, yeah, but to, to go back to your question, so in terms of the duration of the sessions, yeah. so again, it's a bit different, I think, with psilocybin versus MDMA, just because the, the drugs tend to last for different periods of time. So psilocybin is usually somewhere in the realm of five to six hours. Um, MDMA is probably a bit shorter, bordering on a few hours. The way that the sessions are typically structured, um, particularly with psilocybin, is they're in uh, a set-up room. Um, usually it resembles like a living room, somewhere comfortable and safe. Uh, and they're with supervisors or support people there. Um, and that can vary, I think, from just trained counsellors to a psychologist to a psychiatrist. Um, I think there've been different, there've been different studies that have used different uh, support providers in different contexts. Um, in terms of the way that we're hoping to see them be rescheduled, it's uh, to my knowledge, certainly under the guidance of, of someone who's got the appropriate training to be administering those medications and taking you through it. Um, but that's more or less the structure of, of how they go. Okay. And so there's a, say, let's say you're booking for a seven hour session with your therapist. That's quite a long time. What are the, what are the after effects? What is the patient, what can a patient expect to experience afterwards? Are they able to drive home? Are they going to sleep that night? Uh, what's. <laughs> oh, I, I, you certainly probably wouldn't be getting them to drive home. Um, yeah, there are some, you know, so there, that sort of data is looked at in the different studies and there are some, uh, you know, minor side effects that can linger, you know, things like headache. Um, you can experience some mood changes in the days that follow. Um, but broadly, those things tend to not last too long. Um, and they also tend to be, uh, you know, not exceptionally common. Um, so you're right, it, it is a big undertaking. It's not like, you know, taking an hour out of your day to go, sit with your therapist, uh, you know, down the road from your house and then go back to work or, or your regular day. But I think the critical thing, which is one of the most uh, incredible or at least promising features of these, of these therapies is that it's not something that's designed to happen every week. It's not something that you're designed to take every day. It's not a, an antidepressant that you have as part of your morning tablet routine every morning. And it's not your weekly therapy session. It's one to two sessions spaced out by a period of months uh, that we're seeing these results from. So even though it mm. is a big undertaking and it might be a day or two days out of your life that you set time aside for, it is not something that, you, that we're seeing needing to be repeated uh, over and over again. And that is for someone who you know, doesn't want to take a tablet every day or doesn't have the time or the money or the inclination for any number of reasons to go to a therapy session every week, that is game changing because, mm. because it's, it's, it's one or two experiences that can give you this really powerful uh, result. Um, so I think that's definitely worth, worth people being aware of. Okay. One, one, um, I'm sorry, Daniel. <laughs> thanks, Papa. Um, one aspect of that as well is um, your potential opponents of these therapies might say, that sounds very resource intensive, you know, who's going to pay for the psychologist's time. And uh, as Jesse alluded to, patients might think, oh, that's quite a, quite a big commitment, but you have to put it into context of what the, particularly from the health resourcing aspect, what the costs of these issues are. So in Australia alone, um, the Productivity Commission has said that the direct health costs of, um, of mental illness exceeds $50 billion, it's about $51 billion per year. And the indirect costs in terms of lost productivity, so people are not being as effective at work, or even higher than that. And so anything you can do to reduce the impact of mental illness, every dollar you spend has big payoffs. 
for society. And given the potential effectiveness of these treatments, if the if the same effectiveness is maintained through to the late stage trials, I think it's safe to say that these 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 therapies will have extremely high return on investment for society. And I think that's something important to talk about, particularly um, you know if we were to broadly categorize opponents um, of these therapies, you know, often they're more conservative and, and may have certain stigmas associated with um, with drugs that have been built up over time and for various reasons. But the cost aspect and the cost of mental illness to society, both in human suffering, which is incredibly important, but also in terms of the economic cost, I think that's a powerful argument that people um, looking to put forward these views and to educate others about them um, should, should know about. Mm. And the cost to individuals and to, you know, the taxpayer mm. and, and the government of funding, you know, existing pharmacological therapies for these conditions like antidepressants is also very significant. Mm. Um, you know, a mental health plan, which gets you a certain number of sessions with, with a, a therapist or any number of mental health workers every year, um, that costs a fair amount of money, as does taking a tablet every day. Um, mm. and, and, more, and moreover, we're seeing... And the evidence is far more early stage, but this might be something that we see more of in, in the coming years, uh, particularly if scheduling does change. We're mm. seeing the potential for possible application of psilocybin to other conditions. So uh, nicotine and alcohol abuse and dependence, um, even things like anorexia nervosa, um, dementia. Uh, so potentially things that are even more sometimes debilitating and require even more demanding therapies. Uh, mm. which is which is really exciting yeah. and and worth emphasizing both Jesse and I strongly support mental health funding so for example the mm -hmm. government has recently um, increased the amount of their amount of sessions you can get under a mental health plan due to COVID okay. to 20 as part of the federal budget so from 10 to 20 per year and I think that's a fantastic move and they should be applauded on that um, but I think from a consistency standpoint then and in ethics we often think about consistency so if you provide therapies for some for some um for some issues like high blood pressure or, or diabetes, then you should provide it for others. And if therapies have similar effectiveness, we should use that as an objective measure for when we fund them. And this is a good example of that. Mm. Daniel, you seem very interested in the, uh, the ethics and the moral landscape of these, these issues and mm -hmm. these medicines as well. Part of why I like working with Jesse is he's very precise and I'm more philosophical. So as you can tell, he summarizes the viewpoint perfectly and I'm just whimsical in the clouds. <laughs> oh, I love that you complement each other very well. I might just ask you a, a very broad question. You can answer however you like. Mm. You mentioned that the study, you did some study and research in the area of bioethics and the ethical landscape. And I think you mentioned mm. that was in Sweden. And you've mentioned sort of the moral landscape as well and responsibility um, we have, you know, to, to people out there and the governments have as well. Mm. Uh, I'll just ask you to broadly talk to those, those issues and what your thoughts are on them. Uh, that is a broad question. <laughs> that is very broad. In, in, I mean, in relation to these drugs in particular? In, in relation to the drugs in particular and what the ethical landscape, what that looks like here mm. um, in terms of you seem, I don't know, a lot of your answers, you seem to be very um, Dr. Have to get these medicines approved and out to the general public. So mm. what's your driving force? Well, I can talk broadly and, you know, feel free to ask any follow-up questions. And Jesse, Jesse's also studied ethics too. So okay. uh, he can, he can talk about it as well. Um, I mean, for me, it's about human suffering. I think in Western society, we've broadly signed up to the social contract where, and particularly in Australia, you know, I'm, I was born in South Africa. 
we didn't have a public health system there, at least nothing that would resemble what we have here. One of the best things about Australia is our egalitarian culture where, you know, every man in the street can go and talk to the, the man ne- in the street o- next over. And, you know, when the prime minister goes on your front lawn, you can tell them to get off, get off the grass. I'm not sure if you <laughs> saw that, that segment recently. And I think that's a great thing oh, about society. Oh yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Is this image in Sydney where um, the prime minister is doing this interview on this man's lawn um, to announce, I think it might've been the construction stimulus. And he yeah. says, get off the grass, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and the prime minister says, sorry, mate. And the whole journalism pack just moves over off the, off the grass. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a great thing. Like we live in a liberal democracy and we, we have a healthy respect for each other, but we also look after one another. And, you know, we spend 10% of our GDP on healthcare. Um, objectively, I think we spend a lot more on other forms of um, health issues than we do on mental health. And so that's an issue that we need to solve. But then specifically, if we have a drug that's highly effective, that's more effective than the current treatments, which the only reason it was criminalized was based on um, you know, political, um, political uh, opposition and um, as a means to use it as a wedge issue against the left. And, 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 and generally, in terms, if we think that mental health issues are increasing in light of COVID, I think this gives us a very distinct moral responsibility to provide access to those who need it and to, to try and help them where we can. Um, and you don't even have to be, you don't have to be that compassionate. I mean, you know, one, one of the things we've talked about earlier is, uh, is like the cost of these, of the research. In many instances, the organizations asking to do the research are not asking for any public money. They're simply asking for permission to do the trials. So it is only the government's opposition and policymakers opposition based on no good scientific evidence to changing the regulation, which is causing um, the progress of the science to slow down. And I think that's morally indefensible and wrong. And I think we should call it out as that. And the more people that, I think if you talk to them about the, the drugs and the facts about the drugs, I think they have this intuition and a moral intuition that that's right. But then there's also the strong stigma, which has been built up over 50 years of programming from the government that these drugs are always bad and dangerous, but it's simply not the case. Um, and I think we need to do everything we can to try and change it. And um, yeah, as I said, I'm feeling, I feel very committed to trying to do that. And I think also thinking through those are the ethics and that's the best practice and that's the science, but also what's the political aspects. And one aspect, one part of, you know, the advocacy in the UK has been a really strong political bent and thinking through, you know, what are the arguments that most appeal to particularly conservative voters, which I think is relevant given the conservative government is in power in the UK. And obviously that's the case here too. Um, and, and considering very carefully what is the strongest opposition to psilocybin and MDMA being changed in terms of the regulation and how can we bring those people on board for the ride? Because the fact is there's going to be wide areas of the population that agree with us anyway. And so that's good, but then we need to be pragmatic and think about, well, we can think about like we have best practice and we need to promote best practice, but how do we convince those people that oppose these therapies that they're actually a good idea? And that's why I talk a lot about the economics, because I think that's a powerful argument that almost everyone can agree with. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, as, as Dan said, I mean, and as, as you've said, there is a big ethical uh, side to this question and it's worth going back to, you know, for people who aren't familiar, you know, the basic sort of four principles of medical ethics, um, which are autonomy, beneficence, uh, non-maleficence and justice. So basically respect people's wishes about their health and let them make those decisions as long as they understand it. Um, you know, first do no harm uh, and then do good and then distribute resources fairly. And this, these treatments seem to fit all four of those things 
the evidence is really solid that the harms are minimal and very promising that there's a lot of potential benefit there. Um, and so, you know, without making it too highbrow and too complicated, uh, we have an opportunity here to further research and potentially one day soon license medicines that are safe and that are effective and that are effective for conditions where we currently don't have uh, treatments that fit for everyone. Um, and so, you know, for me, uh, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Um, we have an opportunity to help people uh, and we are being to some degree um, slowed down in doing that while people are suffering because of legislation based on largely political motivations from 50 years ago that are out of step with the evidence and the science. Uh, and I think that's, that's really it. Um, yeah. So how are we going to influence people and change their minds to help them to, mm. coach them to get on board with this? Yeah. And, mm. and listeners, um, if anyone out there wants to get involved and be an ad, become an advocate for the policy change in mm. Australia or the UK or the US, how can they get involved? Yeah. Well, the one thing I'll say, and then I might let Dan field most of this question because he's, he's the expert on, on the sort of political side of things, um, <laughs> is that I'll say that, you know, there is a lot of excitement about this and justifiably so, but it's also a sensitive issue uh, and for many people a contentious issue, um, even though, you know, we might not believe that it should be. Um, and what I would urge anyone who is excited about this in a therapeutic context to do is to, is to really um, guide their passion according to the evidence. Um, and the evidence that we currently have is for the potential use of these treatments for specific groups of people suffering from specific problems. And if you rely on the evidence and you point to the evidence that these things work and they help people, then I think and I hope that we will find that people who are concerned and opposed are receptive to that because usually no matter your position and no matter your personal opinions, most people want other people to be healthy and happy. Uh, and so I think that's the strongest thing we can do. Um, and that's why our paper was really clear and specific in its argument, which is it's about medical use in these contexts and we want research to be better enabled. The push for rescheduling in Australia also relates to compassionate use uh, on therapeutic grounds. And we can speak to that a bit later if you want, um, but that would be my, my mm. two cents on that, on that part. I, I agree with everything Jesse said completely as usual. Uh, you know, one thing I would say, the broad way to bring it together is like, l let's walk before we run. Um, and I think it's really, really critical that we separate the medical use from the recreational use. And no one should be talking about people's rights to use these drugs in a recreational environment. And um, we need to be pragmatic and thoughtful and not erode the progress that has been really hard won and hard fought over many years. Because unfortunately, if you just think about it, there were very distinct groups of people in, in, the, in the counterculture of the 70s that due to their actions and you know there were political actors on the other side pushing back against them but the fact is the reason why they were able to ram through these regulations is because there was a lot of opposition in the community to what the counterculture was doing yeah. so whatever we think about the moral weight of that and i'm sympathetic broadly to some of the ideas in that movement it did mean that these drugs weren't available for nearly five decades for people who needed them and i would encourage all of the people who you know, who support this movement to think carefully about that and take that responsibility forward and think about people like James Rucker, who have fought, a, fought, this fought this battle for decades in the Australian context, people like Alex Wodak, who, you know, pioneered drug injecting rooms in Sydney and has really fought his whole life for 
more evidence-based drug policy, um, but don't don't ruin it for them. Because in the age of social media, you can do that very quickly. You know, you can go viral on certain Facebook pages, and then before you know it, you have the prime minister saying that this will never happen under his watch. So be careful. Um, I suppose in very specific steps, I think education is key. Educate yourself and educate others about the science. You know, if you're in a position of power, um, use that power and influence for good. Um, so if you're a policymaker, you know, talk to other policymakers. If you're a scientist, talk to other scientists. If you're a doctor, talk to other doctors. You know, Jesse and I are junior doctors. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of, while there is a lot of support for these drugs amongst some doctors, others, including some psychiatrists, are still opposed to them. And they should educate themselves about the evidence because just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you're right. And we should have a sense of humility um, to educate ourselves and be up to date with the best evidence. Because if you're not, then I don't think you're qualified to talk about it, whatever your seniority level. Um, now, that's to say Jesse and I aren't experts, but I would say someone like James Rucker is. Um, and I think it's important we understand who is the actual expert and who is putting out the perception that they, they're the expert. Mm-hmm. And that's perhaps a con- bit controversial, but it's what I think. Um, and finally, you know, I think you should, if you're a general member of the community, write to your local politician. I mean, political engagement and advocacy is undervalued these days. Everyone just likes things on Facebook without engaging with the political process. But if you care about this issue, write to your local politician. If you live in, you know, perhaps Greg Hunt's electorate, hypothetically, you should write to him because ultimately he will have an important role to play in deciding this. Um, and I think if we can demonstrate that this isn't a fringe idea, and that it has broad support across the community, that will increase the likelihood of meaningful change happening. He's the Minister for Health. He has a disproportionately important opinion Mm. probably on this one. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Um, Mm. And I would say just, I think everything Dan said is is exactly spot on. And, um, you know, unfortunately the period to submit, uh, you know, personal statements to the TGA has just closed. But um, I expect it, it does open up again. Or if it does open up again, then I think I would encourage people who have knowledge or experience in this area to do that because those submissions do matter. And then something I guess I would say to people who might be opposed to us uh, or, or who might be fearful um, or worried is that that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with having concerns about you know, treatments and therapies and nothing wrong with having that position. But I would ask those people to come to this issue from a place of compassion, um, not treating this as a, as a moral or a political issue necessarily, but a medical one uh, and a compassionate one. And to know and think about people that they know in their lives who are out there suffering daily and who have tried time and again with different treatments to get some relief from that uh, and failed. Um, and to know that there is potentially a really great opportunity here for those people to live a better life uh, and to be relieved from tremendous mm. suffering. Um, and there's no reason why that needs to be tied to thoughts and feelings about, you know, broader legalization and recreational use, which is a separate topic that, you know, Dan and I would both have our opinions on. And there's no reason why it needs to be tied to political parties and political mm. motivations. This is a health issue um, and, a, and, a, and an emotional or a, an issue from the perspective of treatment. Um, and that's how I would urge people on both sides to try and think about it. Mm. Just quickly, in the context of COVID, you know, particularly for older generations, we should think about the effect of COVID on the mental health of young people. Um, we know that recessions disproportionately impact young people and their economic prospects. They have big hits to their salaries. Unemployment is going to be really significant. You know, the job subsidy of the government has released aside, they're going to subsidize job places for young people. I think there's going to be huge youth unemployment for some time and it's going to be a really tough landscape for a lot of people. 
And if you have pet children or grandchildren, think about it in terms of like philosophers love thought experiments and think about it that if your child or grandchild had trial, had, had maybe it is at risk of suicide. And this is something I'm really interested in and I'm looking into for my PhD. Uh, and they've tried all the existing therapies and none of them work. And then imagine we have this magical new therapy that comes about um, and has the potential to help them, but it's being held back by government red tape, essentially, and regulation, which is out of step with science. And then imagine, would you want that drug to be available to your child or grandchild? And I think you'd be hard pressed to find people that would say um, no to that question. And that kind of helps to tease out the, the stigma that we feel around these drugs and how value loaded they are. Um, but I think it's an important to realize that we are talking about a medical context and these, are, this, these issues are not going away. They're only going to get worse. And I think we'd be failing younger generations if we didn't give them access to all the possible tools to enable them to reduce suffering and help them um, help themselves recover from debilitating mental illnesses. Yeah. And for those who do want to find out more um, just broadly about this topic, uh, particularly in Australia, Mind Medicine Australia's website has fantastic resources. Um, you can go there, you can read up. They have resources for all different levels for clinicians um, in medicine or in, or in psychotherapy down to just lay people. So I think that's a great place to go. Um, and then, of course, that movie that I mentioned, Trip of Compassion, if you want a sort of a first-hand look at how MDMA-assisted psychotherapy might work, that's also uh, really great too. Mm. And you can read our report. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, quite, it's quite long, but it's, it's on the, the Executive Summary website. Executive yeah. Summary is good. The and there's a few summary. good articles. The, Gu the Guardian in the UK wrote a good article. So. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people access your report? Uh, it's on the Adam Smith Institute um, website. Um, yeah. So you can ha have a look at that. Yeah, we can give you a link uh, if people want to have a look at it. And yeah, as Dan said, was covered by um, four or five of the major newspapers in the UK and then featured on Sky News. Um, one of our co-authors uh, speaking there. So hopefully people can uh, skim through as much of that as they, as they want to do um, and get a bit of a feel for our argument. Great. Well, I'll pop the link in the show notes and on the website and social media as well. I think we've had a bit of a chat about compassionate use on medical grounds. Am I right in saying that there is a special access scheme in Australia for those who have been deemed resistant to current treatments? Yeah, so we do have a special access scheme, which essentially, um, and I've never utilised this personally or professionally. So again, you know, disclaimer, it's based on my knowledge from our research, um, is essentially a way that people can apply or practitioners can apply to access uh, drugs that are restricted. And that's not a specific scheme that exists just for MDMA and psilocybin. Um, it's a scheme that exists to access a range of restricted drugs. Um, to my knowledge, the first person to access MDMA via this scheme. Um, that's actually just recently occurred. Uh, I'm not aware of that having occurred with psilocybin, but I'm happy to be corrected on that. Um, and Mind Medicine Australia has a lot of resources to assist people in trying to go through that process. Now, it is, to my knowledge, a pretty arduous process to go through. And part of this push to reschedule is to make that a little bit easier for people, as well as enabling research. Um, and it's worth mentioning that similar schemes exist around the world um, by slightly different names, expanded access, compassionate use. So the US, the UK uh, and Switzerland uh, and Israel, I think have really led the way in giving people access to these medications on compassionate grounds. Um, so, so yeah, that is something that people can try and do. Um, but to my knowledge, it's a, it's a, a, a long process to go through. Mm. Great. Okay. That's, um, that's really interesting and good that it 
you know, those medicines are available for those who need those treatments. Uh, I wanted to talk about, and this, we can cut this bit out, um, just going through the interview plan here. Daniel, did you want to talk about the work that you were interested in, the work that you did at Prime Minister and Cabinet regarding suicide prevention? And Jesse, is there anything that you would like to cover as well that we haven't covered? Um, no, I'm down, go for it. I'll have a think while, while Dan talks about other things we might want to discuss. Mm. Before, before you begin, I might just ask what you want to talk about so then I can phrase a question before you, before you start. Um, what sort of areas are you going to talk about? Is that for me? Yeah, so are you going to talk about, because yeah. um, mm. I know you did some work in suicide yeah. with AI, but during our email conversation, you mentioned that's probably best for another chat. Yeah, I, I, I'm also happy to talk about it now. It's actually completely up to you um, uh, and, and, and how you'd like to structure it. But I, we could talk about my PhD, which is, yeah. is on that topic, if you like. Okay. All right. And that's yeah. at Oxford. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. Let's do that. Um, I'm just going to ask if you guys would please give me one minute. I've got to let my dog out. I locked the dog door so that she... Um, you know, she doesn't make a lot of noise. Go for it. She's Go just for it. Bashing at it, and I'm worried it's going to come up <laughs> on the audio. So I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> Sorry. Sure. No worries. <laughs> We're matching, Jesse. Mm? Black shirts. <laughs> Absolutely. United front. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Are you going to talk about anything else? Um, no, I'm pretty happy. I mean, I think, you know, we came on, well, I came on to talk really about, about this topic. Um, I wouldn't want to uh, bore the readers with, with more esoteric discussions mm. of, you know, COVID viral shedding time for <laughs> pediatric patients. So I'm, yeah, happy to, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, I'm happy to personally just to leave it there for me. Yeah. I might, but you feel free to discuss whatever you like, obviously. Yeah. I might, might just make it brief and then if she wants to explore it more, we can do that later. Yeah, no problem. Sorry about that. <laughs> You're fine. We on the carpet. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you guys have a chat about what you might want to discuss? Yeah, I thought maybe I could give a brief summary of my uh, of my PhD work, sure. um, which is on um, AI prediction tools for suicide. And Jesse said that he doesn't have anything pressing he'd like to discuss, unless you want to hear about viral shedding of COVID or something infectious <laughs> disease related. <laughs> well, that is relevant at the moment, but perhaps not to this episode of the podcast. So a, a, little, a little more esoteric maybe than you might be hoping for at the moment. <laughs> but watch, watch this space. Okay. Mm. Well, we'll jump into your PhD research. Daniel, mm. can you tell me a little about the PhD that you're doing uh, at Oxford mm. University and the research that you've done regarding AI and suicide prevention? Sure. Thanks, Peppa. Uh, so when, um, after I finished medical school, I got some funding to go to, to Oxford and, and to do further research into, into a topic of my choosing. And I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to, to look into, but I completed an uh, internship at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet in Canberra. 
where I was looking into a number of topics in relation to mental health, because this was something that um, was of interest to the Prime Minister. Uh, and one point that came up was the use of artificial intelligence in predicting when people may attempt or die from suicide. And so it turns out that across 50 years of psychiatric research um, and, and also psychiatric practice, doctors are not very good at predicting suicide risk. And so if you look at, look at all, the, all the major studies um, and you do an analysis of them, we're only slightly better than chance at predicting whether someone will die from suicide. And some of these new AI algorithms that are coming out um, are upwards of 80% accurate at predicting whether someone will die within a certain time period. So within the next week, the next month or the next year. Wow. And so with all the usual caveats that more research needs to be done and we don't know how they will work in a real life context, the initial um, research is really promising. But what I'm interested in is the ethical and political implications of that. So broadly, you've got two categories of tools. You've got one category of tools that's used in a medical context where you might take someone's electronic medical records and medical information about them and the AI will scan that for certain patterns of behavior that it's learned correlate to someone dying from suicide and it will provide that risk profile to a doctor. And so that's generally used in a medical context. But I think what's more, um, what's, what's very exciting but also can be very problematic is the use of these tools to identify suicide risk based on people's online behavior and social media use. And so Facebook, Google, and other companies are actively using these tools on their platforms um, to identify people at risk of suicide and then intervene in various ways. But they're doing it without being transparent, without releasing the results of their, of, of their interventions, without even showing exactly how they do it, apart from to be blunt, some public relations blog posts. Um, and this is all happening in a very unregulated space with information that's extremely private. And I think that this has significant um, issues associated with it, particularly mm. in relation to privacy um, and potentially in relation to justice as well. So mm. that's broadly the topic of my PhD. Wow, that sounds like some very interesting research that you're doing there. I did hear about Google doing that a few years ago that they'd inbuilt something um, you know, it, um, in their search engine that if you continue to type in a certain, you know, I, I don't know how the criteria works, but if Google predicted that you were perhaps suicidal, it might offer you some assistance or mm. might say, you know, do you want to call Lifeline or Beyond Blue or some one of those um, mental health um, organisations. But mm. I have never seen that. I've never... Mm. Um, you know, perhaps I'm not typing in the, the correct things, which is a good thing. Um, but I haven't <laughs> seen or heard of anyone, mm. you know, um, who's had that experience. Maybe they're not talking about it, but is that built into the platform at this stage? Yes, it, it is. And as far as I understand, it's active in Australia. In mm. Europe, these tools aren't able to be used due to the GDPR um, legislation, which means that these companies aren't able to monitor users in the same ways that they are elsewhere. But I think the most extreme demonstration of how they could be used is mm. in America, as with most things. Uh, <laughs> and it's sp specifically with Facebook, which has spent a lot of time identifying how they could reduce the impact of suicide on their platforms. Because very tragically, I think it was four or five years ago now, there was this trend of people live streaming their suicides um, on Facebook. And so the engineers and, um, and leadership there were thinking long and hard about how they could um, reduce the impact of suicide. Mm. And so they um, have a community support team that monitor, monitors these posts and provides support. 
they've got this AI algorithm which screens people's posts as well. Mm. And then they have a range of interventions ranging from, like you mentioned, they might connect you with a suicide prevention hotline or provide you with free information um, to, to support people in crisis all the way through to in very severe circumstances where they think that someone's life is immediately at risk, they will call first responders to those people's homes. And so that's happened in America. I think there's a few hundred people that have had um, other police or first responders called to their home based on their Facebook activity and their geolocation data. Uh, and so that's obviously quite, I think intuitively to me at least, it seems very problematic. Um, particularly mm -hmm. when we don't know whether that's actually a good thing to do to people mm. who are at risk of suicide. And also those people never gave consent for their data to be used in this way because Facebook doesn't provide capacity to opt out of the use of their tools. Absolutely. And while it may be a pro if somebody does have their life saved, it is a huge issue in uh, big data, the tech world, Google, social mm. media platforms that they are collecting this data and using it in ways that well, we don't know how they're using it and, you know, influencing us in ways that we may not want or ways that may not be good for us. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And as well, as well, um, you know, I'm thinking a lot about, I mean, the medical use of the tools I should flag. I think you need to have strong ethical protections. You need to protect the data, but I think it's reasonably unproblematic. But in the social prediction tools, there's a lot of big issues that come about. I mean, Facebook um, has been found to, to do so many unethical things. I know in Australia, um, there was recently a case, I think it was Facebook, was uh, there was an executive that was boasting um, a few years ago of, that they could identify when teens had low self-esteem and then use that information to sell them items that align with that. And so they've shown a willingness to capitalize on people's feelings and emotions um, for commercial benefit, which, mm. you know, frankly, from their perspective, makes sense. I mean, they're a commercial company, they're liable to their shareholders, they should make profit. And I think this is clearly a place where government though should step in and provide people with strong protections to make sure that they can enhance their autonomy, like what Jesse Jesse mentioned before, protect their individual privacy and also regulate these companies so that they can't commercialize data. And I think just to provide an extreme example um, to help flesh it out for people, like I think a lot of people have this reaction that, oh, I don't really care. You know, maybe this isn't gonna affect me. But imagine a situation in the future where, you know, um, these tools were 100% effective at predicting whether someone died from suicide. So you know, we had a section of this recent paper that my professor and I worked on called, uh, is this a slippery slope to the minority report? Um, and I, I, this seems a bit like a far reaching um, assumption, but if you have 100% effectiveness in identifying whether someone died from suicide, that information is very powerful. It can be used to manipulate um, you know, financial information and particularly if someone was in a position of influence it could have commercial considerations. Um, it could be used for blackmail purposes. And while we don't think that Facebook is necessarily going to do this, they might just use it to sell you more things. It matters how they're using that data and where they're storing it and how it's regulated. And at the moment, we have no clarity on what happens to it. Yeah. And I think that in itself demonstrates we have to have very clear requirements on how this data is used and stored. And we have to be clear as to what these companies are allowed to do and what they shouldn't be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just thinking the, the impacts that that could have on someone applying for a job. So mm. it reminds me of uh, in China, how they have the social credit score where, you yeah. know, if you haven't paid your parking fine or something like that, you may not be able to ride public transport and you try and swipe your card and it won't work. And then you have that public shame of everyone seeing you get off the train because it won't let you on and those kinds of things. And, and that could definitely happen here in terms of 
you know, financial disadvantage that you mentioned. Uh, mm. Banks might want to see your score from Facebook. You know, they mm. might see if you're a potential candidate for a mortgage or not. You know, if mm. you if it was 100% effective, potentially you wouldn't be able to get a mortgage if Facebook had predicted or another social media platform had predicted that. Mm. Scary stuff. So... That's right. It's a big issue. And I think more people should be talking about personal privacy. So mm. maybe that's another topic for your podcast. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> On the personal privacy point and what, in terms yeah. of what data people are putting online, I would just encourage everyone to educate yourselves on what the terms and conditions are of the platforms you're using and realize that almost everything that you put online could be used uh, by a commercial entity um, um, in, a ver- in various fashions to make commercial decisions and also maybe monitored by government. So mm. it's not to say that everyone has something to hide. It's just to say that if you feel uncomfortable with that proposition, your best way um, of defending yourself is through encryption and also through um, modulating what you put onto these online platforms. And um, I personally think that that's a really important thing for everyone to be thinking about, particularly in a liberal democracy. Um, and it would encourage more people to, to consider how they could uh, make their lives a bit more private. Mm. Mm. Great. And also, I suppose one thing, given the topics that we've discussed today is, you know, if you are experiencing experiencing difficulties at the moment, mental mental health difficulties, or um, if you feel like you need, you, you might benefit from some help, please do reach out to one of the free, um, free services that are available. Beyond Blue is one, but there are many other hotlines that you can reach out to. And also go and talk to your GP or to your local health professional. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of support available and the government... Um, is is really stepping up to the plate and providing more funding for these organisations. And I would encourage everyone to seek help because um, uh, it's very important. Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a very interesting, in-depth conversation. I've certainly really enjoyed it and I hope our listeners will as well. And I think it's great work that you're doing. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. It's It's been really great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you might like to think about supporting the podcast on Patreon or following the podcast on Facebook or Instagram.